I'm going to read from Habakkuk chapter 2, and as has been my style recently, I'm going to skip some of the woes, um, but we'll come back to them. And I even need your help understanding one of them, so hang on. This is from Habakkuk chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So if you remember, uh, Habakkuk complained specifically about God's silence. God answers and lets Habakkuk know that the um, Babylonians are going to be used by the Lord to punish the evil of Judah. There's an, an irony almost in it. Judah, in acting like Babylon, will be treated like Babylon. And then, uh, excuse me, Judah, in acting like Babylon, will be uh, disciplined and uh, exiled by Babylon. And then Babylon will be judged. Then Habakkuk complains about the answer that God gave. He didn't like it. He did not like God's response. (laughs) The Lord's answer again in chapter 2 is about um, what's going to happen to the Chaldeans. He pronounces woes, which are uh, predictions of destruction and pronouncements about evil. We have a lot to learn about when the Lord gives woes. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus gave many in there. I can't imagine him saying them without shouting, though I wasn't there. I don't know, and Matthew doesn't record whether he does. But when the Lord describes something that we see in the world, we do well to pay attention because if God exists, then his description of those things is far better than our own, far more accurate. The reason that the Lord is capitalized is... uh, Hopefully, the version of the Bible that you read reflects this. This is the personal name of God. And it happens throughout the Old Testament, and it's worth noting every single time because of the intimacy that it implies. In the Hebrew, this is uh, Yahweh. But they give different vowels to it. I, I assume some of you know this. They give the vowels to the word Adonai, which means Lord, which is why in the Latin translation it comes up as Jehovah, which is a transliteration of those, the combination of those things. I'm, I'm moving right to left because Hebrew goes right to left. So you have Yahweh, and then you have Adonai, and when you combine them, you get Jehovah. 
This is the personal name of God who is explaining to us something that I think we understand. I mean, if you're worshiping with us online on a Sunday morning, I assume you understand that as a human being, you have two paths available to you. Chapter 2, verse 4 describes those two paths, describes the two humans metaphorically who choose them. One is to trust ourself, and the other is to trust the Lord. And I think it's incisive and interesting, and in, uh, I can't even think of the adjective that I want. This is probably about 10 or 15 years before the nation of Israel is exiled. And Habakkuk has some sense through the things that the Lord tells him about what's going to happen. And yet it's still true before the exile, during, and after that there are two paths available for humans. One is to trust ourselves, and the other is to trust the Lord. I mentioned a number of weeks ago that um, here the Lord describes the life of faith very, very simply. And there is a, um, a Midrashic text that I can't quote because I didn't write it down, but, but the heart of it is God gave 613 laws in the Torah. In Psalm 15, which a young man recently quoted to me because he understands that it's a summary of the law that's in very plain language. In 613 laws in the Torah summarized with 11 laws in Psalm 15, summarized in Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In Isaiah 56, verse 1, he summarizes the law and the with God life in two ways. And then here in Habakkuk, we trust ourselves or we trust the Lord. Summary of the with God life in just one description. Habakkuk was troubled by God's silence. That's one of the challenges of the with God life. And yet ultimately, God is not silent. And this doesn't really make us feel better in the midst of great suffering. Eventually, though, it does. We're celebrating, in Advent, we celebrate one of the most profound things God said when his word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we look at the manger, we cannot look at the manger and think God has been entirely silent. Maybe he hasn't answered your questions to your satisfaction. When we sing these songs, they are songs of defiance towards a world that is still under the curse, but a world that has seen a great light. When we see pictures of angels, we remember that God is still active and moving throughout the world, calling people to himself and to a kingdom life. We remember light at the darkest time of the year, which I don't love because it's a pagan homogenization of Christian things, but I do kind of like that at the time when it gets dark so early, there are so many more lights because Jesus is indeed the light of the world. So the Lord's answer, he gives us this binary description. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. So that's the person that's trusting themselves. That's what they look like, literally and spiritually. But the righteous shall live by faith. 
This is the heart of the with God life. This is the gospel. This is the most flourishing life available to a human being on the earth. Is to say to the Lord, I trust you with my whole being, with my head, with my actions, with my stuff, with my words, with my loved ones. Perhaps a more profound way is, Lord, I trust you. Help. Right? Isn't that life? I do trust you, Lord, and I need some help trusting you. The Lord's answer might seem slow to us. You know how time just feels different to us. I remember hearing someone say that uh, the days feel short, or the days feel long, but the years short, talking about... um, It's a woman named Sandra Stanley, who's been one of the best parenting coaches I've ever heard, talking about little kids. And I have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, and I agree. They don't let me pick them up anymore. And I miss that. I don't know when time is the slowest for you. The DMV is, is pretty much what I think. But sometimes security at the airport or, I don't know, when do you hate to wait? Conversely, when does time feel fast? Most of the time that I go hang out with friends, I'll say something along the lines of, I'll be back in probably an hour to my wife, and she goes, do you know yourself? There's no way you'll be back in less than two hours, because I really like my friends. I can think of different sports and put them all on a spectrum, depending on how much I actually like playing them. The the ones that I like playing more, time goes fast. The ones I don't like, time's slow. And I know that doesn't make any sense, time is slow, but you know what I'm talking about. We all experience the flow of time differently. Notice as God is talking about waiting, in verse 3, he says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. I'm certain that's where uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda came up with the song Wait For It that Aaron Burr sings, right? Surely, it's from Habakkuk. (laughs) Or Wait For It is a very colloquial expression. But note the generous, compassionate condescension of God. Now, condescension, when it's from God, is not a negative thing. It is simply (laughs) his perspective is not limited, and ours is. But he expects us to be challenged by having to wait for the day of the Lord. And in Habakkuk, it's a, it's a, triply fascinating um, encouragement. It's encouraging that God is so compassionate towards us and knows that we struggle with patience. It's also interesting because in verse 14 and verse 20, I believe he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. So Habakkuk's both talking about the exile that the Israelites are about to experience, and then God is going to describe the punishment that the Babylonians are going to experience not very long after uh, they exile Israel. And then he jumps to the second coming of Christ. And while we wait, what happens? Don't we learn things about ourselves? Whether it's in time time that goes fast, we learn what we love. Time that goes slow, we learn where little resentments and blind spots and frustrations are within us. And for the person of faith, when we are made to wait, in this case on the second coming of Christ, among other things, like our small anxieties and our large anxieties, we learn who we're relying on. We learn which part of chapter 2, verse 4, 
reflects our faith? Are we an arrogant person that relies upon ourselves to have all of the knowledge and skills available to them to do life? Or do we rely on the Lord? What we're waiting for is Jesus to return. I think verse 14 and verse 20 of chapter 2 are very interesting because I think verse 20 is the beginning of the second coming of Christ and verse 14 is what it will actually be like. So they're given in reverse order. We need almost all of the prophets plus Revelation plus when Jesus spoke about his return to get any kind of sense of the picture of this. But in studying that with all of you in 2019... I'm convinced that but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him is the beginning of the second coming. And then verse 14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. An interesting part of the with God life is learning to wait. Is learning to express, and and learning to wait doesn't mean don't complain. Habakkuk gives full-throated complaint to God, both about God's silence and then about God's answers. Waiting doesn't mean we're not complaining. It means we're owning it. Lucy says to Aslan, when Lucy's upset with Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia because he's leaving, he says, do not worry, I will see you again soon. And she says, what do you mean by soon? And he says, I call all times soon which is consistent with how Paul writes in Thessalonians and Jesus speaks about these things in Mark chapter 13 and the Revelation speaks about these things. And the Lord gently speaking to Habakkuk and telling him to tell us about it. We wait for it. Maybe a little bit like Aaron Burr. Maybe not. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay generous, compassionate condescension of the Lord. Last week I invited um, you to read a book with me. Some of you purchased the book, which is encouraging to me. I'm enjoying reading it myself. Um, It's a Syrian theologian's reflections on Habakkuk called Frustrated with God. And his reflections, Riyadh Cassis' reflections on this verse is, Habakkuk needed to know at that moment not what God is doing or what God is capable of doing, But he has to realize with his mind and heart that God is the Lord, the master and the sovereign. And before this Lord, humans can only seek submission and silence. The more we experience God's greatness, the more we can face the hard circumstances of life and the tough obstacles that hinder our path. This is the cover of the book, which is uh, painted by his wife, I believe. And I feel like if I say those words to you, they're somewhat compelling. When a Syrian theologian talks to us about the hardships of life and learning trust through complaining, and then through listening, and then through trusting the Holy Spirit to teach patience, perhaps it's that much more profound. The Lord's answer, while slow-seeming, then pronounces woes and destruction. And, And this is so important. Because it comes up throughout the scriptures, and we miss it, and and sometimes miss its importance. These are real events that are about to happen. They're 10 or 15 years off, and they're horrific and violent. Habakkuk's probably writing about 605 B.C. In 587 is when Babylon accomplishes the destruction of and exile of Israel. And then in 539, all these things that God describes here are going to happen 
to the Babylonians at the hand of the Persians in about 539, not that long. Real events that were horrible. Here is God's description of them. We read some of this at a reading of the text, but I want to go through all of it. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth. No cities, two cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. Now here is just lots of interesting historical facts going on. And if you want to learn more about what Habakkuk is talking about, you can read about it in Daniel chapter 4. But among other things, Nebuchadnezzar put his name on all the stones of his temple. How incredibly arrogant. And yet they're going to be thrown down. Picking up in verse 12, this is the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fourth woe, and this is the one I understand the least. So you can think about it and let me know what you think this woe is getting at. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. Notice that God's love and compassion, his mercy and care for the earth are not limited to humans. In the same way that at the end of Jonah, he reminds Jonah that he didn't want to destroy the city. He wanted them to repent, not only for the people's sake, but also for the cattle. Same thing is happening here. The Babylonians were incredibly violent towards Lebanon, including exploiting their animals. That's actually what I think the fourth woe is about, is exploitation. But that exploitation is not simply towards humans. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. I think the first woe is greed. I think the second woe is, is arrogance. Third is violence, the fourth is exploitation, and the fifth is idolatry. And when the Lord teaches us about these things, we aren't getting a history lesson. We're learning what's evil in his sight, and more importantly, what he will judge. As a Christian, when you see these things in the news, and when you see these tendencies in your own heart, they are to bother you. That's part of why the scriptures teach on them so regularly, especially the prophets prophets, both that section of scripture and those who were prophets but didn't write their own books, like Deborah, Elijah. 
And Habakkuk, I believe, is beginning a move that the New Testament is very familiar with, which is idolatry is not simply a religious practice problem. Now, that is a problem. If you go buy a statue and worship it on Sunday instead of coming to church, that is doing harm to yourself. That disintegrates your humanity. But idolatry is also a metaphor, and the New Testament utilizes this uh, theme very regularly to talk about the incredible destruction when nations are idolatrous and when humans are. When nations are greedy, arrogant, violent, exploit others, and worship idols, the violence and death and destruction are incredible. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, he writes this about idolatry. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God mocks them in Habakkuk. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Can it teach this silent stone? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. When the scriptures teach us us on idols, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to grow into our full humanity. We have an opportunity to be released from the temptations of the world. We have an opportunity to flourish. But it takes some spiritual work. Not that that merits anything before Christ, but we do the work of following him with respect to idols so that we might live real lives. This week I uh, pulled up my Amazon browsing history to see if it might tell me something about idols. I don't know if you can see that. Probably depends on how big your TV is. I tried to minimize the uh, duplicates, but there are still some in there. You know, a bunch of novels that that I read That's a knife sharpening kit up on the left side. It's a book about the church's role in race from one of my old ethics professors. And here's what I learned in looking at this. You can see it goes back to the beginning of the pandemic because there's toilet paper on there. When I was looking at my browsing history, what concerned me, because I know some categories of exploring idolatry, was this. What was effortless to spend money on? wasn't the commentaries on Hebrews and on Habakkuk that I study because, you know, I want to make sure, I want to be clear and, and help you and me both understand the Bible better. I buy those with some amount of care and thought. It was the stuff for my kids that was effortless. And that's one way that idolatry can be very, very sneaky. Almost every idol that you and I functionally worship is from a good desire that we have allowed to grow too large. For me, it's that my kids are happy. I have the same uh, struggle with my wife. Of course, I want them to be happy, but that's not my role in their life. It's to be their dad or their husband, which sometimes overlaps quite a bit with their relative happiness, but sometimes is in conflict with it. 
as I was looking at my browsing history too, I was uh, aware that something that didn't show up on Amazon, because I only use Amazon for some things, was how easy it is for me to pay to rent a movie. There's some kind of potential idolatry in me with respect to films. It's effortless for me to rent a movie. Plug in my iTunes uh, password and start watching. So I'm going to give you a couple of categories for thinking about idolatry, and I hope that you do a little work on it this week because there is freedom for your heart found in addressing them. Uh, One is, what do you purchase effortlessly? I mentioned. What gives your heart rest? Do you know? Uh, My old pastor in St. Louis wrote a book called The Imperfect Pastor, which I think would be encouraging to the imperfect human, as well as the imperfect pastor in the middle of the book, talks about the idolatry of those who have been faithful to God for a long time. Their idolatries are more about being able to fix everything, being able to know everything, being able to be in more than one place at one time. As we explore our own idolatry, the answer to it is not simply to remove it. That's actually impossible. Important to understand, and I'm going to speak kind of in metaphorical spiritual terms here, but I think you can follow me. It is important to remove it, but you must put something back in its place. And that something must be the gospel. Now that sounds vague, right? I'll give you a very tactile example. Years ago, I, this is going to just sound ridiculous to some of you, but it's fine. Years ago, I realized, this is before I moved to Connecticut, that I was looking at a shopping site every day because they often have incredible deals, especially on tech. It's called Woot.com. So I fasted from it. And in fasting from it, I just realized how great it was to not be involved in it. But in taking out Woot, I still have this tendency to think, if I buy this thing, I might feel a little bit better tomorrow. When I hear that voice, whether I heard it or I just started clicking through some other shopping site, I have to remind myself that my contentment is in Christ. Uh, Watches, shoes, coats, these are things in the past two weeks that I've been sure if I had that thing, I would feel content, and I get to then pray. Lord, remind me that you are my contentment. Remind me that only you can actually speak to my soul As the Lord explains in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, the things of this world cannot speak to our soul. This is one of the ironies and why we do the work of naming and destroying our idolatries and then putting the gospel in their places. Then we enjoy those things. The Lord's answer, while slow-seeming, pronounces woes and destruction until his glory descends. I believe verse 4 is a reflection that our lives reflect who we trust. We trust ourselves or we trust the Lord. It's an ultimate and a binary move to rely upon God or rely upon ourselves. Now we receive that faith through Jesus and his descriptions of himself as the Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. We hear God pronouncing the woes over Babylon, and we know that those woes are still destruction and death and violence, whether we see them on the news or in our own heart. Jesus added to the woes 
hypocrisy. Because our faith is not religious practice. Our faith is receiving his love and then living in light of it. So if we're practicing religion but have not affection for God, he has some very harsh words for us. Matthew chapter 23. Hebrews 10.38, Romans 1.17, and Galatians 3.11 all quote the Lord speaking to Habakkuk because this is the life of faith available to us until the Lord is in his holy temple and we're aware of that and therefore keep silence before him until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea until then we continue to rely on him we continue to trust him and ask him to help us trust him more deeply not yet because of communion would you pray with me father we ask as we receive your sacrament that you pull back the veil between the spiritual realm and this mundane one we ask that we sense the kingdom power that you have for us in the sacrament we know that you're strengthening us lord we praise you for it and ask that you would give us a sense of that amen